Today we have on chef, teacher, writer, and Netflix star of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Samin Nasrat. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, an adventure podcast presented by REI Co-op, the brand who helps get you outside through gear, classes, and adventures. We talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have climbed the tallest peaks, started thriving businesses, and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy holiday week. I hope you're all safe and well and enjoying some time with loved ones, hopefully some time outside. Today we have on a special guest. Not only is Samin Nasrat the star of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which is a gorgeous adventure food documentary series by Netflix based on the book of the same title. By the way, if you watch this movie or read her book, you're going to be hungry, so be prepared. But Samin is an old cross-country buddy and teammate from high school. She's a wonderful story about how food became important while growing up in an immigrant family. Her parents came over from Iran and how not always fitting in has allowed her to fear failure less. The great thing about Samin is she's just a joy to be around and she makes cooking and eating food fun and just accessible to everyone and anyone, no matter who you are. And she's no rookie. She's been cooking professionally since 2000. Her first book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Mastering the Elements of Good Cooking, was quickly a New York Times bestseller, and it won a James Beard Award. For those of you not in the know, the James Beard Award is like, it's like the Oscars in the food industry. She's been called the next Julia Child by NPR's All Things Considered, and her TV series that just came out in October, it's crushing it. I know so many people who are talking about that show. I asked her about how she wrote the book and how the show came about, how she got Michael Pollan, the famous author, to be her mentor, why cross country was so important to her growing up, and we go deep into some other topics. Then she shares some amazing recipes that will wow anyone who's hungry at any of your holiday gatherings. This was a really fun show to record. You'll hear it in our voice. Enjoy. Oh my goodness, Samin, how's it going? Shelby! It's so exciting. This is like, this probably is the most exciting podcast interview I get to do of the year. (laughs) I'm so excited. We should probably start with how we know each other through high school cross-country running. (laughs) I was just telling someone about it. I was like, oh, I'm about to do this interview with my friend from 25 years ago. So, but even then I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, you brought cookies to cross country practice. I did. Yes. <laughs> you would bring cookies and like really yummy things. And you were like the team. I don't know if you were like the team mom, but you had some special position. I was fully the mom. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember like I was just a nerd and like focused on winning and but you were like this nice person that brought everybody together and made cross country so fun because for me it wasn't always super fun. Yeah, well, I was never a very good athlete. <laughs> so, and I was actually just thinking about why I joined cross country in the first place, and I'll never know the answer why I was moved to join this running team when I hated running. And I was never the fastest or even remotely the fastest, but I loved the team part of it so much, and I definitely loved 
eating together. <laughs> you know, like coming together to have pizza or when we go to Mount Sac, I always was so excited to go to the Sizzler. <laughs> I remember that. That's so funny. <laughs> so to me, I think it was a really formative experience because it was one of the first times in my life that I felt part so, so like, you know, inextricably like bound to a group of people and to a group of women. And it was and so for me, the way that I could really show up for that was by being a person who really helped bring everyone together. You know, I wasn't going to ever be the number one runner. And, um, but, but we all, the nice thing about that team and our wonderful coach was that like, there really was room for us to be ourselves. And, and there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of spaces like that for me as a young person. And, um, it was a really formative time, you know, and, and still I'm friends with some people from that team and I'm still in touch with our coach and coach Dorman shout out and hi coach Dorman. (laughs) And it it really was an important part of my, you know, growing up. That's so cool. I loved cross country. So we should probably tell people there were 53 women on our cross country team. And I think, yeah, I don't remember how cross country scored, but like maybe the first five to seven, I have no idea, Yeah, but I just, but there was just room for everyone, which was so wonderful. Yeah. So tell me more about that because you'd said in a previous interview that you didn't always feel like you fit in. And so I'm curious to know the connection between food and maybe even running and being part of a team and how, how that helped make you feel, you know, part of the team overall. Yeah. I mean, well, so as you know, (laughs) we grew up in a pretty like wealthy part of town and it was a pretty like predominantly white part of town and my family was neither white nor wealthy. (laughs) And so, and in fact, I, my, I came in from a different part of San Diego. Like I, we sort of crossed some sort of a limit for me to go there. I had to take Latin to be able to go to those schools. And so before I started going, my mom, so my family's from Iran and my mom sat me down and she was like, listen, you're going to go to this school. I want you to go to this school because it's, you're going to get a better education but you're going to be surrounded by kids who have a lot more than you do and they act differently than you do. And so like, you're going to come to me one day and say, Oh, why don't I have this shoe, you know, or that coat or this car. (laughs) And you know, the answer then is going to be the same as the answer now, which is like, you're never going to have that. So don't ask me for it because that's not what you're going to get from me. You know, like, you know what our, our, our limits are and this is the life that we have. So, and you know, like clockwork, a year later I showed up, I was like, mom, can I have hush puppy shoes? <laughs> How and funny. She was like, no, she was like, remember what I told you? No. So I think we were, I was always aware that I, I didn't necessarily have the same resources. I was certainly aware that I looked different, that I had a different name and that I came from a different culture. And it wasn't the most diverse um, part of town by any means. No. And And cross country is definitely like not, it's definitely like a more upper crust kind of sport, you know? (laughs) And so that, and, and yet we had a team, you know, our coach really could have cut off the team at like seven or 14 girls and he just made it open to everyone. And that was a really formative thing for me to be 
part of something where I felt welcome as myself, even though I wasn't the best. Because as an immigrant kid, like who had always struggled to feel like I belonged in any environment, which by, you know, at the time of 12 is like mostly school. <laughs> to me, I was like, okay, well, if people aren't going to like naturally want me here or accept me, then like I have to prove that to them that I need to be here. And that is going to happen by being the best. But I was never a great athlete. I was never going to be the best runner. And so for the first time I was part of something where that pressure was not put on me in the same way. And it was really amazing to feel like I could be part of something and you know, it was in a big way, like my first dose of like American pop culture, what came from being on cross country. And like, I learned about a lot of music that I had never listened to. Really? And like, that's so yeah, cool. There was, yeah, yeah, there was a lot, you know, and, and I always think of coach Dorman because like, for me, I think he was the first feminist I ever met. He was certainly yeah. the first male feminist I ever met. He, he introduced me and I'm sure many others of us like gave us a relationship to the outside world, mm. like in you know, I think for me and my family, like my parents were so busy sort of just like making a life for us that it wasn't like the priority was not to take us camping or on vacation. And so like we went to a lot of trails. We went, we, we went camping. I went on running camps, you know, up the coast of California to all these beautiful places that now are really important for me in my life. And I have this deep appreciation of the natural world that really was fostered by my time on that cross country team and, and a love of the ocean and like, be, I mean, I already love the ocean was always my place. And so, but we just, you know, our school couldn't have been any more beautifully placed, like two blocks from the sea. <laughs> like, I mean, I had no idea of the privilege that I had at that time, like getting to grow up by the ocean and, and spending so much time at the beach. But it really, it really set a tone for me. And then beyond that also, he was my 11th grade English teacher and he taught me to, you know, I always loved reading, but he sort of convinced me that I could write and that I should write and that I didn't have to be a doctor. Like I had just assumed I would have to be as an immigrant kid. And so he definitely was my first writing teacher. And that, that was a really important, another really important formative relationship for me. So I've had another guest on the show, Eric Wolfinger, who also works oh, yeah. in food. And he also said Coach so Dorman. with Mr. Dorman. Yeah. yeah he also said Coach Dorman was a really big influence on his life. So if you're a teacher listening to this podcast or your kid, you know, some of your teachers might be really big influences on your life. So I just have one more cross-country story because I recently learned from a couple of friends that, oh, we were running our little tails off. <laughs> a couple of my girlfriends were like, oh, yeah, Shelby, you'd be running. And we would just duck behind the corner of the hallway when you and coach Dorman and the, the crew would run by and we'd go to Seven Eleven and get cherry and Coke Slurpees. And then we'd put water on our face in the bathroom and run back. I was like, what? While I was like killing myself trying to place. So funny. Did you ever do that to me? Super. I was, well, I'm like too much of a rule follower. Me too. So I'm, I, I, it would never even occur to me to do such a thing. Mm. But I also, I, I didn't know that specific group of people or that, those specific stories, but I've definitely heard of people like, you know, um, exaggerate, like doing like running to the beach, hanging out and then coming back 45 minutes later. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so funny. So yes, we did live across the street from the beach. There was a few times where I 
definitely went surfing or dipped my body in the water at lunch and came back with wet hair. I don't know if you can do that anymore <laughs> if you go to La Jolla High, but we were pretty lucky. There's a pool there now, Shelby. There's a pool. They have a pool. <laughs> I know. These kids are really lucky. And I mean, you know, when I moved to La Jolla, I moved right before freshman year and my mom's like, hey, you're going to public school. And I'd been going to this like nice little private school. And I was like, really? And my sister's like, you should join the cross country team. You like running. And those were my first friends too. And I'm, I'm so lucky. The girls were smart and interesting and I didn't feel like I was all alone. I was so scared of public school, but it was really cool. My, my parents were like, Shelby, athletics are going to be better. And then my stepdad's like, I know you're boy crazy. There's probably going to be better looking boys. And (laughs) he was right. So I want to dive more into your childhood because, you know, one of my very best friends is also Persian. Her family came over here in the seventies and Yasi. And I just really love this story about, you know, how you and your mom, your mom cooked for you such beautiful, wholesome meals and what that did for you growing up and how, how you developed a love for food young. Yeah. So my parents came from Iran to San Diego in the mid seventies. And then I was born in 79. And I think the conditions, you know, like immigrant stories are really complicated Mm -hmm. in general. And still in my family, there's a lot of secrecy around the reasons why we came specifically and why we came to San Diego. So there's a lot I don't understand or know. And, um, in retrospect, now that I sort of have met so many other people in the world and am such a like committed storyteller, I think I understand certain things about why things were certain ways in our family that I didn't understand as a kid. Because as a kid, it's just your reality. Because as a kid, it's just your reality and you, you know, it's what you know and you just, it's there. So, so for me, I think from looking back, I think my mom at least my mom and possibly my dad believed that we would go back, that this was a temporary thing. And so for my mom, I think she really wanted to raise me and my brothers to to almost be prepared to go back and immerse ourselves in an Iranian life. And so that meant for her to teach us to, to speak Farsi, to follow Persian etiquette in our home. And really the way she shared our culture with us the most was through food. And she, I always say we spent like 40% of our childhood in the back of the Volvo station wagon driving around Southern California looking for the ingredients that tasted like home. So Like saffron. We, yeah, like saffron. Well, saffron mostly was smuggled in suitcases ah. and socks. <laughs> but, Interesting. Um, so that came from Iran. But then things like you know, cilantro and the freshest herbs mm. or lamb that tasted just right or – flatbreads. We would drive to Irvine to get flatbreads or, you know, so many different cultures and countries have feta cheese and they all taste slightly different. And so we were always looking for just the right feta cheese or the very, very brief time of year when sour cherries were available in San Diego. And so my mom became this expert at like all the different grocery stores, you know, and the the like hippie co-op and the um, Persian grocery stores and the Asian grocery stores and like which places had what and where we had to go for which thing. And so it really was just sort of a built in part of our lives. It was grocery shopping and then coming home and, and I didn't have much of an interest in cooking and my mom didn't seem particularly, you know, like have to have an opinion about getting me or my brothers in the kitchen. We had our chores that we helped with, but she really did the bulk of the work of, of cooking for us. And Persian cooking 
is very labor intensive and time consuming. And there, it involves a lot of chopping and preparation and peeling and simmering and stirring. And she, she did it all. And she made really beautiful food for us. And every day we sat down to a beautiful, you know, very elegant home cooked meal. And that was the main way that I developed a relationship to my culture and, and an appreciation for it. I mean, Persian food is delicious and it's really one of the most um, intricate cuisines there is. And, and I, I feel so grateful that my mom did the hard work of really giving us that because I think it's, it gave to me um, a lifelong love of eating, which I think is you know, number one prerequisite for being a good cook. Mm, that the scene in salt, fat, acid, heat, the last one with your mother is so <laughs> beautiful. I got teary eyed in a documentary series on yes. Netflix. You and your mom cooking Tadi. How do I say it? Yeah, I'm gonna, tadi, yeah, I, okay. Yeah. I asked Yasi for like a couple of pronunciations before this podcast and I've already forgotten how, how to say everything. <laughs> And there was a couple of restaurants in in La Jolla and San Diego that had some Persian food, but Mm -hmm. probably nothing like your mother's cooking, which is so, so cool. She's so, my mom is also very opinionated and she pretty much like made it clear to us that when we went out to eat in Persian restaurants, we weren't ever to order (laughs) anything that she could make because she could make it better, which is true. Yeah. And in general, Persian restaurants really like um, focus on kebabs, on, on rice and kebabs. And so there were a couple restaurants actually not far from our school. Yeah, you're right. Marketplace Grill. To, yeah, Marketplace Grill, which our friend owned and it was so good. And then we would also go to um, – we would often drive to Orange County where there were, were a lot more Persian restaurants that were really good. And we'd meet up with family there on the weekends. And that was, but my mom was like, no, 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 you don't get to order, you know, the stuff I make, you get, you order kebabs. Cause I don't make that. <laughs> and so that was our experience of eating out in Persian restaurants was like, to me, I just associate them as kebab places. Wow. So then you went to Berkeley for school, which is an amazing school and just so progressive and sounds so fun. Everybody I know went there, had such a good time, but you got into food even more there. Can you tell us about maybe the time you went to the first five-star restaurant with a boyfriend? Sure, sure. (laughs) So, um, well, when I came to, when I moved to Berkeley, I, you know, I went to my freshman orientation and they mentioned that there was this world-class restaurant in town. But like San Diego, at least at that time, was not like a big eating place. still isn't, um, really. Yeah. There's beer. Yeah, totally. And there wasn't real, I mean, there's amazing Mexican food. Oh yeah, that's (laughs) true. Yeah. And that's what I grew up eating. It wasn't, I didn't really have a concept about, I didn't understand what a world-class restaurant was. I didn't understand what fancy restaurants were or famous chefs. This was also 1997. So like it was before, you know, food blogs, it was before celebrity chef culture. It was, you know, the food network was still pretty new, so, I mean, I, I always had liked a little bit watching cooking shows, but it was not, I don't know that I really understood cooking as a culture or certainly as like, um, as something, you know, to like as a cultural touchstone, you know, that chefs were cultural figures. So it's sort of like, I was like, okay, cool. There's a fancy restaurant, like white people's parents will take them there. Like my parents, when they come here, we're going to go eat, like we're going to, they're going to try and find a Persian restaurant. <laughs> 
And so, <laughs> so um, it didn't really register until the next year when I fell in love and my boyfriend was from San Francisco. And so we spent a lot of our time sort of going to his childhood favorite restaurants. And he had always wanted to eat at this world-class restaurant, Chez Panisse. And so we saved our money. We saved over the course of seven months, we saved $220 and we went to eat there and it's two restaurants in one upstairs. It's a less formal cafe and downstairs it's a little bit more formal dining room with, with, um, a fixed menu. So we went in and they brought us the meal, which was delicious. And I was, again, no stranger to delicious cooking because my mom was such a great cook. I knew what good food tasted like. But what I had never experienced before was eating in a restaurant where like every need was anticipated mm. and where I felt so cared for, like I was eating in someone's home in the best way where they were attending to every single thing. And like there were these amazing flower arrangements and there were these beautiful handmade copper lanterns on every table. And it was really just like thought had been put into every aspect of this dining room and of this meal. And I felt that. And um, the dessert was chocolate souffle. And so when the server brought it, you know, like we definitely stood out. I was 19. I was wearing a black tank top and a denim skirt in a fancy <laughs> restaurant. And so in probably what I think could be considered the fanciest restaurant in Berkeley, like we were definitely sticking out. And so when this, I'm sure they were very much charmed by us, if not annoyed. And so the server brought the souffle and she said, have you ever had souffle before? And I said, no. And she said, would you like me to show you how to eat it? And I said, yes. And she said, you poke a hole in it with your spoon and you pour this sauce in and that way every bite gets sauce. It was a raspberry sauce. So I did it and I took a bite and she said, how is it? And I said, oh, it's really good. But you know what would make it even better is a glass of cold milk because, you know, like a warm chocolate thing and a cold yeah. glass of milk is like really good combo. But it didn't even occur to me that it's like super duper rude to tell somebody in their restaurant how their thing could be better. And also what I didn't understand at the time was that it's like considered a faux pas in fine dining to drink milk after 10 a.m. So like later when I moved to Italy, I learned that like only Americans ask for cappuccino or cafe latte after 10 a.m. Like milk is for babies. And so, you know, it, as if like they didn't know I already didn't belong, like I really like showed my hand, you know, <laughs> by asking for milk. So she, I think, was charmed. So she went and got me milk and then she brought us each a glass of dessert wine to sort of teach Aww. us the find accompaniment. And it was just this really nice interaction. <laughs> so I was moved to work there and I always had jobs throughout college. And so I wrote a letter asking for a job to bus tables and I brought it in and they said, oh, you need to bring that to the floor manager. So they brought me to the floor manager's office and when she opened the door, it was the souffle lady. Like, and so she recognized me and, you know, we had this like moment and then she, she read my letter and she was like, Oh, do you want to start tomorrow? Which now I recognize was a sign of desperation. Like you don't ask someone to start tomorrow unless you like really need somebody. So <laughs> I just had good timing and I started busing tables and immediately I just was completely enchanted by this place because, you know, by then it was 1999, I think. And, um, Alice Waters founded that restaurant in 1971. So the restaurant had been there for nearly 30 years. It was a machine. It was an institution. And it had a way, and a lot of people who worked there had worked there for upwards of 20 years. And they were some of the most masterful cooks 
in the world. And I, you could just see that you could feel it. And it just felt so inspiring to be near them. And I thought I was going to graduate and be a poet. It didn't even occur to me that like a poet is not a job that most people <laughs> can make a living on. <laughs> well, it's so, a job. It's just hard to make a living yeah. just as yeah. a, that kind of a writer. And so I started to realize, oh, I'm going to need a skill. I'm going to need a job. And so around the same time it was hitting me that I probably like would have to go be an advertising executive or something or assistant, probably more likely, like, which I knew <laughs> in my heart I would never be able to do. I was being so inspired by the cooks in this kitchen. So I started begging them to teach me how to cook. And at first they said no. And then eventually like I wore them down. So eventually uh, I learned how to cook in that kitchen and it was really another very formative and life-changing experience. But I think what you did was you had persistence and tenacity and you're so nice and lovable that people will take a chance on you. And then you yeah, proved yourself down, sure. over and over again. You showed up. You probably were like early, didn't leave until late. I'm just guessing. You have an amazing work ethic. And I think if you're a kid listening to this and you want something and you show amazing work ethic or you're an adult and you want something, <laughs> that pays off. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think in restaurants, especially in the food world, like it's all about showing up and working hard and just – and that was, you know, people who were trying to foster me were just like, you just keep showing up at some point, like a crack will open and you can sneak in. And that's exactly what happens, you know? And that's what I tell now young people is, you know, if people say no, you just, and you really want it, just keep trying. Like, and so I, in a way I've been, I've been, I don't, I don't know if I've built or I just naturally have a, a, a kind of resilience professionally. Like I'm willing to fail. I'm willing to be told no. I'll ask for anything and sort of just keep trying. And, and not to say that it was easy. Like there were, I remember going home and crying and being really upset that I didn't, you know, get an opportunity or whatever, but eventually I did. And that's also just what cooking is. Cooking is just like getting up and trying again the next day, you know? Cooking is practice. Most things are practice. Sports are practice. You know, most, you're not like really born knowing how to do a lot of stuff. Almost everything comes from practice. And so I think just showing up and trying is such an important part of learning anything. So you don't have a big fear of failure. And do you think you got that from food or how did you develop that? Um, I wonder... I don't know. It's really funny because I think professionally, like I'm willing to fail a lot and I don't really, yeah, I kind of, I'm just willing to make mistakes and to ask for things that I might be told no about. But personally, I don't have the same confidence, which is funny. Like I have a lot of insecurity personally that I don't professionally. So I wonder, you know, how important some of those things like cross country, I think really taught me a lot about just showing up. And even like coach Dorman, I remember he had this line where he was like lead from the front when he was teaching me to be a leader and sort of preparing me to be the team captain. He was like, listen, like you have to lead by example. So you might not be the fastest runner, but you have to have integrity in your choices and in the way you treat people and in the way you show up and in how hard you work. And I took that really seriously. I'm really earnest. And so I don't understand. I've thought a lot about my fear of failure, the lack, I would say, of my fear of failure. And I don't know where it comes from. And I think maybe it's because I'm not naturally good at a lot of things and I've had to practice 
and had to learn and had to sort of invest the time and energy and earn that feeling that like what appears to other people to be effortlessness. Like people are like, Oh, you're such an effortless cook. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like took a lot of effort to get here. You know, it might take me five minutes to make a salad now, but it took me 10 years of practicing to figure out how to make just the right vinaigrette. You know, there's a lot of work that comes before what appears to be effortless. And so I think that messing up is just part of the way there. And I am a perfectionist and I'm really hard on myself. And so I do a lot of work like in therapy to be more forgiving of mistakes of, you know, and understand that mistakes are just sort of a part. It's like part of being human and it's part of being on the way there. And so in order for me to accept the whole thing, like I also have to accept the mistakes and the failures. Mm. I really liked in your, in your show, you just, you did things that, that just made it so comfortable to watch you. I mean, just tasting all of the food and you would laugh. And <laughs> I mean, for me, eating food in front of a bunch of people on TV would be a little intimidating because I yeah, eat like a I, savage I, and I'm like, when I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And if someone's yeah. making guacamole in front of me, I want to put my finger in it and eat it. Totally. <laughs> I you, mean, you me go too, for it. It was like, awesome. I, yeah, I think it's funny because I think I, some of the things of the of the bigness of the experience certainly occurred to me. And and at times, you know, like I was just talking about this yesterday, actually, how like I injured my knee several years ago and it's not operable. So like the way I have to heal it and repair it is by physical therapy, which I am not the most like devoted mm. person to my exercises. So yeah. then like my knee still hurts and means I can't do a lot of certain kinds of exercise. And so I have a pretty sedentary job at times when I'm writing. So I'm sitting and then I'm eating. And so I've gained a lot of weight. And in fact, when we were making the show, I'm the heaviest I've, I've ever been. And I was definitely like that. I, you know, that crossed my mind. I was like, here I am being the heaviest I've ever been eating food like joyfully in front of a global audience. And I definitely had some insecurities about like what negative feedback that might attract, you know, like, are people going to be harsh on me? Cause I'm not stick thin. Cause I'm not just like, you know, a beautiful model eating on food TV. And, um, and I had to sort of put it out of my mind after a certain point and be like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Cause I'm just me and I'm here doing this thing. And I do love eating ice cream and I do love eating cheese and soy sauce. And like, it's my job to be joyful here and to be myself and there's nothing else I can be other than myself. And so it absolutely crossed my mind. I'm not sure that there's any human or certainly any woman whose mind it wouldn't cross. But I had to just like sort of accept it and put it aside and keep moving forward. And I do eat. I'm a pretty messy eater. <laughs> and I love using my hands. You know, and in some ways I tried to be polite in other people's kitchen. <laughs> not like a total monster. Yeah, but you did I, great, like, Samin, and yeah. you looked beautiful the whole yeah, time. I and so. <laughs> I just wanted and, to eat with you. It was awesome. Yeah. And I think like what it did was like, I mean, I don't, there's a, been so much press and I don't really read most of it for my sanity, but there have been some pieces that are just like comment on the fact that like how sort of groundbreaking it is that a person who looks like me, who's not white and not stick thin, is taking such joy in eating on camera and that that really hasn't happened before or certainly not in a really long time and how meaningful that seems to be to a lot of people. And I'm so proud of that. Like I'm so proud 
that I get to represent something for people and, and let themselves see themselves and maybe feel permission to feel good about like taking joy in eating. Because to me, like eating is something we all have to do. And it's such a great way to connect with other people. And why shouldn't it be joyful? You know, it's something we get to do. <laughs> and so if I can like be a source of joy or inspiration or even like help relieve a little bit of your own anxiety or fear, then I'm really proud of that. Well, it definitely showed through in, in Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, the documentary series. I mean, I think that's the great thing about food, just like nature. Nature doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care if you're black, white, big, small, whatever. It doesn't know your sexual orientation. The trees don't know. Food doesn't either. And mm-hmm. you're able to bring together so many different cultures and people of different ages I mean, it was really enjoyable for me to watch. It made me want to eat all sorts of foods that I don't really eat right now. And <laughs> that's awesome. Um, it was it was great. I mean, I went. I like you cannot watch that show hungry. That's like number yeah. one. I ended up watching it at like nine, and at ten, I was like, I got to make something, and I like put salt <laughs> on it, and it was so fun. And and I'm eating slightly more plant based right now, and it's so boring without salt and oil. And I was like, this is dumb. I can improvise instead of oil. I'd use avocado, but yeah, it was great. And someone told me, I have a friend who, you know, she is an athlete and in the limelight a lot and she's not small by any means. And, you know, she always gets hit up to do TV shows and I got hit up to do a TV show recently about something and, or just a spot. And I was nervous cause I'm like, I don't look the best I've looked and you know, my face has like this vitiligo thing and it's turning white. And she's like, Shelby, Oprah didn't wait until she lost 10 pounds to be Oprah. Totally. Totally. Like no one waits to be, I think that you hit it on the nail, like have joy now wherever you are at. And your joy comes across so largely in salt, fat, acid, heat. Everyone should watch it. I'm giving an endorsement. I'm not supposed to do it on this podcast, but who cares? So means my friend. It's amazing. I didn't know I was saying your name wrong this whole time, by the way. Can you teach me how Tim Ferriss said it? What's Oh no, that was you're not saying it wrong. Oh, That's God. right. You introduced oh. yourself as Samin and we would sing songs about you, I feel like. Yeah. Um, no, I'm Samin, yeah. It's that he just wanted to know the Persian, the uh, Farsi pronunciation, which is Samin, but like Samin. nobody called it would sound really weird if a white person called me Samin. So okay. like don't worry. <laughs> all good we're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsor when we come back Samin shares some amazing recipes and more REI is closing on Black Friday again because they think some things are more important than selling stuff like spending time outdoors that's why they pay their employees to opt outside and they invite the world to join in So even though it's their fourth year in a row, it's still all about doing something different. So take a midday bike ride with the family, spend the night around a bonfire, or honestly, if you just want to make an epic snowman or sandcastle, that's cool too. Change up your routine and opt outside this November 23rd, 2018. Okay, I want to jump to Michael Pollan because I think a lot of people know Michael Pollan just from, you know, his work and his show. And you, I I love the story of how you met him and how you're persistent because you found this great mentor and having a mentor is really important. Can you just share briefly how he became your mentor? Because the persistence of this story 
is just badass. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think I read Michael's Botany of Desire book in maybe 2001 or 2002. And it really was so inspiring. And after that, I followed all of his work and he really, um, became a person I very much looked up to in food writing and in the food world. And I, and then he moved to Berkeley and started teaching at the UC Berkeley school of journalism. And so one day he came into the restaurant where I was working and I saw his name in the reservation book. So I wrote a card, I wrote him a card and I said, Oh, like I really look up to you and I'd love to come take a class with you at the graduate school. And I gave it to the server and asked the server to give it to him. And I, I wasn't there that night when he was eating. So Michael, like, you know, against the odds, <laughs> wrote back to me three weeks later, he wrote me an email and he said, come in and talk to me, come to my office hours. So I went to go talk to him and I asked him if I could take a class. And he basically was like, no, you can't because there's, it's a really small class. There's 12 spots and only one of them is for somebody who's not in the graduate school of journalism. And I have a long list of people to whom I'm responsible. You know, there's all of the other graduate schools at UC Berkeley. There's the undergraduates. And then after that, I can open it to the community, which you belong to. So you're probably not going to get in. But if you really want to, you can come to the first day of class because I'm going to ask all of those people who come in and vying for that spot to like fill out a little form. So we went in, I went in and over 200 people showed up because at that time it was really like the peak of his like first wave of popularity. He had just written The Omnivore's Dilemma and he was a huge journalistic star and so many people wanted that spot. So I just felt really like deflated. I was like, there's no way I'm going to get it. And he asked us to write, you know, on an index card why we wanted to be in this class. So I wrote something And I went home and I was really sort of deflated. And I asked, I sort of mentioned the story to a friend who was in a different program at the journalism school. And she's like, don't you know anything, Samin? Don't you know anything about academics? And I was like, no. (laughs) She was like, you need to write him an email right now and tell him that he needs to let you in the class precisely because you're from the community, because you'll bring a different point of view to this class because you come from within the food community and the class was a food journalism class. And so you're going to be able to offer something to the other students that other people wouldn't be able to offer. And I was like, I could never write a, a letter to Michael Pollan demanding something. And she was like, what do you have to lose? So I was like, okay. So I wrote a letter saying, you know, like, I really think you should let me in because I'm a cook and I, I have looked at these issues from a different angle and I come from a different place. And so he wrote back, he was like, okay. Like, it was so funny. Like, I just needed to ask one more time, you know? <laughs> and so I got to take this class and not only did I get, you know, to be, to work with Michael, but I also you know, for the first time in my life, like got this amazing writing community because by then I'd been cooking for eight years and I had an incredible food community, but I befriended all these young journalists who now are all of my peers and I work with most of them. And a lot of them taught me really crucial things about like how to write and what's a pitch and connected me to editors. And we share, many of us share an office space now. That's really important part of my like work life. And Michael later went on to go wanted he wanted to write about cooking and cooking cooking's importance in human history. So he hired me to teach him how to cook. And he wrote about me as his cooking teacher in his book, which was called Cooked. And then that book became a show 
for Netflix. And so I, he invited me to come on the show. And then that was how I met the woman who became my director, Caroline Sue. And also along the way, Michael really noticed that I was so, you know, committed to this way of teaching that involved these four elements. And so he really encouraged me to, t- to write a book. And he said, you know, you've come to me with all these other ideas, but this is your idea. Like focus on this because this is a strong, unique idea that only you can write. And I've never heard it. And it's a really good one. So he really encouraged me. And the nice thing about Michael, and I think the good thing about any like true mentor is they also tell you no. And they tell you when you're wrong and they, and they keep you off of like away from bad ideas. And I had a lot of bad ideas. I had a lot of thoughts about what it meant to be a writer. And he was like, listen, like you're, you have a really skewed idea because you know, a lot of like celebrity chefs or authors who are already well known, but writing isn't about celebrity. Writing is about ideas and this is a good idea. So pursue this. So I'm really grateful to him and he continues to be like an incredible supporter. So yeah, he's just been so wonderful. That's a good story. I love that you taught him how to cook because I was just talking to someone for our last show and and they said, you know, for a mentor, when you want a mentor, you also have to give them something. And yeah, I've taught a bunch of my mentors how to surf. Oh, that's awesome. You know, Eric taught the guy at Tartine how to surf. And then he mm-hmm. traded bread baking lessons for him with him. Mm-hmm. Ended up doing that Tartine cookbook, which launched his career. I think, I think you have to share something with your mentor or it helps. I agree. I love that story. So now there's this big TV show. How did it totally come about? Well, so Michael's show Cooked was really well received. And I think the episode that I was in was really well received. And so Caroline, who directed that episode of Michael's, we really connected on on that shoot. And she just was like, you're going to have your own show one day. So she really shepherded the project to the production company. And they, you know, um, knew that I was writing this book that was in four parts and Netflix, I think, wanted more food stories and food shows. And so it sort of just like unveiled itself. It was an amazing thing and a a very unique one in that the opportunity just kept sort of like unraveling before me. It wasn't something I had to, not to say we didn't work hard or I didn't really want it, but like I didn't have to go down a traditional path of like, I don't know, finding an agent and like all that kind of stuff. And so it was really amazing and remarkable. And even before the book was published, we were already working on the show. So it was... um, So it's been a while. How many years then has it been? Because the the book came out a while ago. The book came out a year and a half ago and we were... Only a year and a half ago? Yeah. I feel like it's been out longer. It feels a lot longer. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy. Like Because Netflix just like moves... Netflix makes everything more popular, which is amazing. So the book, yeah, it came out about a year and a half ago. And by then we had already like, you know, like Netflix had already agreed to buy the show. So by then we were sort of in the early stages of developing it. And then last summer we really like went into pre-production and then we shot all about a year ago, last October, November, December, and January, we did all of the filming and then, um, and then there, it takes many months to do all the post-production and editing and setting, finding the music and all that kind of stuff. So we were done done sometime this summer of 2018. And then it came out in October. And I think, you know, a person can have hopes <laughs> and, and, and private, private hopes for what they hope the reception for a project will be. 
And I'm certainly ambitious and had big hopes, but I, I don't think I could have ever dreamt that this would happen. <laughs> oh, it's so good. So I can only imagine that you must get hit up to come to dinner by everyone on the street or you, can you yes. tell me some like so pretty funny. funny fan funny fan ones. sightings a very common a very very common thing which is super weird to me is that people keep inviting me on their dates which is not to say that they're inviting me on a date they're inviting me to join them on a date at a at, at a restaurant off in Chez Panisse and I'm like am I like what you're like I work there <laughs> I've been there I'm a lot. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to come on your date. That's weird. Like, <laughs> but it's definitely reached a point where like the other day, for example, I came out of a coffee shop and I had to go around the corner into a building for, for an appointment. And like, it was literally less than a block away and I got stopped six times for photos. Wow. So I think, you know, I think it's a thing where people feel like they know me, you know, yeah. because. I'm not playing a character. I'm just myself. Mm -hmm. And um, I think they really feel like they have a relationship with me after watching four episodes. And so and I really love that because my goal in my work is to feel like I'm your friend in the kitchen and I'm encouraging you and like that I have a strong enough voice that even when I'm not, you know, when the show's not on or, or the book's not open, when you're cooking, you'll think, oh, like. Samin would tell me to do it this way and I'm going to do it this way because that makes sense for these reasons. So that is something that I set out to do, but it's really funny because I, I guess I did it really well. And so <laughs> now it's like kind of this thing where I'm, I, I'm struggling a little bit to figure out like, how do I conserve my energy? So, you know, cause it's, it's, it's a big energy output to really have such a intimate personal interaction with so many people every day. So I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I preserve myself and still, you know, um, give people something, you know, and let them have a nice interaction. But yeah, it's that's going to be a weird thing. It's going to take me a while to figure out boundaries. What's like what's boundaries? I don't even know. Yeah, yeah no, but but I think I I mean, you hit on so many points. I mean, I, I struggle with that just with the podcast people and my own friends don't call me anymore. They're like, we just heard you listen to you like five <laughs> minutes ago. And it's small. So I can only imagine at the level that you're getting at. It's, I think what I learned so much from your show is be uniquely you. Just be you. Yeah. No yeah. matter what. You did it yeah. so well, Samin. And, Thank you. And it's Thank so you. good. It made, it made everybody love you. Like Johnny, my fiance, doesn't eat. He's like kind of raw vegan a lot. So boring. I love him. But... <laughs> He just was so excited and like so into the food and your show is an adventure show. I mean, it really is an adventure yeah. and food show. Was there an adventure of part of it that you really loved while making the show? Um, I mean, for me, well, I think I'm pretty fear. Like, again, I'm like willing to be totally myself on camera, which I think I, I guess I'm understanding is like relatively unique. I think a lot of, I just have, I'm so unselfconscious about certain things, about things that I think typically most people are very self-conscious about. Yep. So like I'm willing to try and mess up. I'm willing to like almost fall out of a boat. I'm willing to, <laughs> you know, I'm willing to like do whatever just to sort of like jump in and do the, do the project. And often that just means like showing up and being present with the person and letting them show me whatever it is that we're doing. And so um, 
I think in a, in a way, like maybe them, I mean, it's hard for me to rank the, the things, but I really loved visiting the Parmesan factory and, and getting to like understand how this ingredient that's so important to me in my cooking that I love so much is really made. And I've read a lot about it. I've written about making Parmesan, but I had not ever gotten to do it. And in a way, I mean, it might seem crazy to call cheese making an adventure, but like it's absolutely physically demanding. And it really is this incredible process that I, I, I felt so lucky to witness up close. And so that one, anytime I got to see how something was made, that was really exhilarating for me. So soy sauce was another one that like, that like, I just didn't understand how this thing is made and how much work and care goes into it and how special it can be, you know, and I, and like to me to get, get to observe that and, and sort of deepen my respect for these ingredients was really, really, really important and fun and exciting. I went out and bought miso after that episode. Oh, I good. I feel like you should be tied to like all these companies so you can get it cut. <laughs> it's really funny. I'm like I'm and and like the soy sauce. Well, we made a website where I cuz I I one thing that was really important for me was to share credit and let some of these people who invited us into their homes and into their you know, factories and projects to get some financial benefits from this, you know, cause they, they didn't, we didn't pay them to go there. So they shared with us and I wanted them to, you know, benefit in some way. And so I made a website for the show that really linked directly to each of the people. And I think within 24 hours of the show coming out, a lot of that soy sauce had sold out. I don't think, you know, and it's not something you can just like whip more up of because it takes three years to make. So, so I mean, in a way I'm really happy that he, it like led to some, some like income for them and some support. And what ideally in the long run that can mean is that these traditions don't disappear, that people invest in them and that things that have been really important parts of these cultures for hundreds or thousands of years get to continue on. So, yeah, it made me really happy. Okay, so it's Thanksgiving around the corner. It's such a weird meal. Such a weird meal. It's not my favorite, (laughs) but my mom is one of those. She was not like your mom. Everything was takeout. She worked full time for a little bit. She was a single mom after my dad had died. And it was actually a lot of Marketplace Girl takeout, which we were pretty lucky. Oh, that's Uh, awesome. uh, A lot of times. Sometimes it was just like just disgusting. I don't know what it was, but um, I love my mom, but she actually cooks on Thanksgiving and she invites lots of people in. So like as a kid, the guy who bagged our groceries at Vaughn's, he would come to our birthday party and Thanksgiving dinner, her students who didn't have a place to go, the guys at the gym. I mean, I mean, pretty much if you guys wanted an invitation, go find my mom. Yeah, she's great. So Thanksgiving is the one holiday we are not allowed to miss. Like she finds it very universal and it's all about gratitude. Her cooking is... uh, I love you, mom, but um, it's not always my favorite. She'll use like the, 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 like the bagged stuffing and like the cranberry sauce in the can. And I'm like, oh God, that comes out with like rings on it. So I've been trying to bring some other stuff. Mom, I love you. But everybody here has a great Thanksgiving story listening. What are some things that maybe we can bring to enhance Thanksgiving or recipes? Okay. So my main like point about Thanksgiving is that most of the dishes are either like bland, bland you know, yeah. often Turkey is like not that exciting or like people don't salt it properly. So it's really bland and maybe even dry 
or they're often very rich and very fatty or starchy, like mashed potatoes and stuffing. And so the thing that usually gets lost in the mix at Thanksgiving is anything with any acidity because acidity is like, you know, it seems like this like kind of, um, I don't know, kind of scientific word, you know, (laughs) but really it just means anything that's tangy and tanginess like balances food. It offers contrast. And in a meal like that, you really need it in a rich, bland, starchy meal you need acid. And often on most people's Thanksgiving tables, the only source of acid is cranberry sauce, Mm -hmm. which is why people are always like putting more cranberry sauce on their plate, whether or not it has rings. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) I mean, I think the ring stuff is pretty good. It's pretty good, but she makes other stuff too. I got to give her credit, but, but yeah, the tang. And so to me, I'm like, let's bump up the acid in everything. Let's add a little bit of acid to everything. So if you're making mashed potatoes, maybe use sour cream or creme fraiche instead of just cream or butter. If you're, you know, in your gravy, add a little splash of white wine at the end. When I make stuffing, I use sourdough bread. So it's already Mm, sour, you know, I I use tartine bread actually. And And then like often I'll put dried fruit that I soak in white wine. So that's like little acid bombs in the stuffing. Yum. Or I make a really acidic salad with a nice like bright vinaigrette. Or another thing I really like to make is fried sage salsa verde. So it's just a simple salsa verde, which is just fancy word for like herbs chopped up, usually parsley chopped up and mixed with like red wine vinegar and olive oil. That's the simplest way. And if you wanted to, what I like to do is put some shallots in the red wine vinegar and let them sit for 10 minutes before I add everything else. So, and then you can just fry sage leaves because sage is such a classic Thanksgiving taste. And so if you fry them really quickly for like 30 seconds in hot oil, they get really crisp and so you can crumble them up into the into the salsa verde and you get this yummy thing that's like puckery and delicious, but also Thanksgiving-y tasting. And that's oh. really nice to drizzle over both any roasted vegetables, but also over the turkey or over the mashed potatoes. And it brings a freshness that I find is typically missing. You know, Thanksgiving tastes are usually like very roasty or very cooked like cooked for a long time. So what's missing is often anything that tastes clean and fresh. And that's a big part of, I think, why at the end of a meal you're, you have like fatigue. You're like, I just ate all this like very, very rich stuff. So anything that can lighten up the meal, I think will make it a lot more enjoyable. Oh, that sounds so great. So mean, this has been such a pleasure. We ask all of our guests just these two last questions. Advice you'd give to your 15 year old self. So that sophomore in high schoolish age, oh, which for wow. me was hard it, cross country. I was, I was, you know, a good runner, yeah. but it was a kind of a weird time. Yeah. It was a hard time for all of us. I yeah. Think. It's a confusing time for any high schooler. I think anybody 15. Yeah. yeah. I think for me, wow. What would I tell myself? I think what I would say is I mean, it's the thing that I still need like a little bit of help believing, but I believe a little bit more. (laughs) And it's that like, you're fine just the way you are. And, um, and like embrace the differentness rather than just trying to fit in. I mean, I've spent my whole life trying to fit in and, and recently I'm like, oh wait, I don't think anyone feels like they fit in. You know, it finally occurred to me that everyone probably feels a little bit left out and, and 
and embracing that I think is a really healthy, healthy response to it rather than feeling always like there's something wrong with you, you know, and I, anything I could tell my little self, you know, to help her believe that, that I was okay as I was, that she's okay as she is, is, um, would be, I think, very meaningful and well-received. So, mm, Such good advice. How can we do like this hiking adventure where we hike and just eat beautiful food? Oh can my God, that that's my life healed? dream. I'm working on it. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. That is really, I mean, that's one of the things I'm looking forward to doing is taking a break and like really working on like healing my body. And I, I do, I mean, co- cooking outside over fire and like in the nature, in like the natural world is just it brings me so much joy. It's pretty much my favorite thing. Like all anything I can do to cook outside, I do it. So yes, let's do it, Shelby. Samin, I can't wait to see you. I'll take you surfing, whatever you want when you awesome. come down. I feel like you're going to be really in demand, but I'm so <laughs> proud of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's so fun to reconnect with you. Samin, thank you so much. I loved this. I can't wait to see you in person. You can find more on Samin. Just watch her show, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat on Netflix. Or you can also buy her book. It's available pretty much everywhere books are sold. And you can gift it to loved ones for the holidays. You can also find her online at Chow Samin. That's C-I-A-O-S-A-M-I-N. Also, saltfatacidheat.com. So, I mean, I really hope one day you lead hiking trips where we go hut to hut and there's just amazing meals in between. It would be so awesome. I hope you all enjoyed this show. There's a lot going on right now in the world. We're just coming off some crazy fires in Southern California. And so wherever you are, lead with kindness, give hugs to your friends, to your family. And don't forget, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas We'll see you next week.